0: All right, so that being said, um, let's jump into the sermon material. Uh, And uh, Pastor Mike gave a great introduction talking about how we need, we all believe in the resurrection. I'm I'm probably not going to convince anybody of the resurrection today. Um, But what I'm going to give you is evidence and proof that you can use to convince somebody else. Or perhaps in a moment of doubt and a moment of weakness, which will come in your life, uh, this can be something, this this proof can be something that you can use for yourself. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And this word defense is the Greek word, Greek word apologia, which comes from the law courts. And the idea is that if you get accused of murder or you get accused of fraud, you're not going to go into court and say, well, I have faith that I didn't do it. You're going to come into the law courts and say, here's the reasons and here's the facts why I am innocent. And in the same way, when somebody asks you about your faith, certainly you can say, well, this has changed my life. This is my testimony. But you should also have an apologia, a defense. You should have reasons. Uh, Because human beings are reasonable people made in the image of God. And we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind as well. So that being said, let's look at what is the evidence for the resurrection. Now how could there possibly be evidence for the resurrection? Isn't that just something that you believe on faith? Well, believe it or not there are non-christian people as well as christian people who are studying jesus who are studying all of christian history if you went to any community college and studied the christian religion there would be a professor that would teach you about jesus and uh, because jesus is the most important most interesting person in human history and when these people are studying christianity or studying jesus they're going to study it from the outside looking in they're not going to going to assume that Christianity is true or that uh, miracles happen, they're going to be studying it, trying to study it from an objective point of view. And people have been studying Christianity for over 150 years from this perspective. And what we have found, and I'm going to be basing my sermon today on the research of William Lane Craig. I encourage you to look at his book, Reasonable Faith. ReasonableFaith.org is his website. He's got a book on guard. And the second last chapter is basically um, the content of this sermon. Um, But what we can see as we look over the research on Jesus over the last 150 years, certain facts are starting to emerge as people are studying and researching Jesus. And specifically, there's five facts that are more or less accepted. And as I'm going to show you, the first two are very well accepted. Uh, But all of them are very strongly uh, supported. I'm going to give you the facts and the evidence why these five facts are supported. And then we're going to look at what is the best interpretation of these five facts. So the first fact that we need to deal with when we're looking at the historical Jesus is that Jesus was definitely crucified. The second one is that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The third is that the tomb was discovered empty. The fourth is that he was seen after his resurrection. And the fifth fact is that the original disciples came to believe in his resurrection. So these are all individual claims that you can make historically. Did, was he crucified, yes or no? We can look at the facts and see whether he was crucified. Was he buried in a tomb? We can look at the facts and discover whether or not he was buried in a tomb. And all together, we're going to ask, what is the best explanation of, of these five facts? And we're going to see that the best explanation of these five facts is that Je- God raised Jesus from the dead. So first of all, the crucifixion of Jesus Jesus was tried and executed by crucifixion in either A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. The proof for this, of course, is the sources of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, as well as Paul, as well as Acts of the Apostle. Um, As well, there are extra-biblical sources. The Babylonian Talmud uh, talks about how Jesus was tried in a Jewish trial, uh, Josephus, the, Ro- the Jewish historian, talks about how the Romans sentenced Jesus to death. And Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, mentions that it was Pontius Pilate that put him to death. On this point, I don't know if you know this, but the Quran is very much mistaken, because the Koran, uh, the, the Holy Book of Muslims, says that Jesus was not crucified. But William Lang Craig states flatly that no historian believes that Jesus was not crucified. In fact, according to Paula Fredrickson, the crucifixion is the strongest single fact that we have about Jesus. Because all of the sources of the New Testament mention it as well as numerous extra biblical sources. There is no doubt about the crucifixion of Jesus. He was definitely crucified on a Roman cross according to the historical sources. Second fact, his burial. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is significant. It's significant that he wasn't just put in a communal grave or that his body wasn't just lost somehow to history. And that is significant because as we're going to talk about the empty tomb. People knew what tomb it was. They knew where it was. They knew whose tomb it was. And so it was significant that that tomb was then found empty. The first proof for this is 1 Corinthians 15... 3 to 6. And this is a passage I'd like you to turn to because we'll use it a number of times. This is perhaps the earliest por- portion of the New Testament. Now, 1 Corinthians is not the first book to be written. But as Paul starts this section, he says in 1 Corinthians 15:3, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. So as he's writing this about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says, I've received something and now I'm passing it on to you at this point. So whatever he received, he received before this. And in Galatians, he talks about how he went down to Jerusalem and had a conference with the first apostles. And it was perhaps at that point or at his conversion in Damascus that he received this message. So what is the message that he received at a very early point and that existed before he wrote 1 Corinthians? That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And this fits together as almost a creed. This is something that likely Christians were saying to each other before Paul came on the scene as kind of the, the, the core and the center of Christian belief. And as you can see, it implies an empty tomb. He was buried. He was raised. As well, the Gospel of Mark contains the story of how Jesus' Jesus' empty tomb was discovered. And Josephus and how Joseph of Arimathea, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. As well, a really interesting proof, historically speaking, is that Josephus was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so historians are looking at this and saying, why would Christians who... Um, saw their, their Messiah as being crucified by the Jews, and especially by the Jewish authorities, why would they make up a story about somebody on the Sanhedrin doing something good to Jesus? Jesus' burial by Josephus is very probable, says Raymond Brown, since a Christian fiction creation of a Jewish Sanhedrin who does what is right by Jesus is almost inexplicable. Historians are very interested in things that seem embarrassing. This is called a criterion of embarrassment. When something seems to be embarrassing in the story of Christianity or in the story of of anything that a historian is repeating, uh, it's more likely to be true. If something is less embarrassing, or, or maybe they're glossing over an embarrassment, maybe that's something that later people invented. But why would, somebody, why would a later Christian invent um, the story of somebody on the Sanhedrin burying Jesus? As well, there is a distinct lack of legendary features in Mark's account. Mark's account is very brief, very short, um, and has no legendary features in it. And to illustrate uh, what I mean by that, let me share with you, because some people might say, well, come on now, Mark's account is, talks about the resurrection. How can you get more legendary than that? But let's just look at Mark's account. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salomon brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be afraid, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's it. There's no apologetic explanation. There's no theological explanation. It's an extremely short and concise account. Now, just for comparison's sake, let me compare that to the Gospel of Peter. Now, the Gospel of Peter is something that was written in late in the second century by Christians who were trying to make the Christian religion look better. And it was rejected as one of the canonical Gospels because it was written late and because it wasn't written by eyewitness accounts. But this is what a myth looks like. Early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem. Now there's a large crowd coming. And the surrounding areas, not just Jerusalem, but the surrounding areas, to see the sealed tomb. But during the night before the Lord's Day dawned, as the soldiers were keeping watch... Two by two, in every watch, there came a great sound in the sky, and they saw the heavens opened, and two men descend shining with a great light, and they drew near to the tomb. The stone which had been set on the door rolled away by itself and moved to one side, and the tomb was opened, and both of the young men went in. Now when these soldiers saw it, they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they were keeping watch too. You get the idea there's a lot of people at the tomb in this story. While they were yet telling them these things which they had seen, They saw three men coming out of the tomb, two of them sustaining the other one, and a cross followed after them. The heads of the two they saw had heads that reached up to heaven, but the head of him that led them out went beyond heaven. And they heard a voice out of the heaven saying, "Oh!" and a cross followed them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, have you preached unto them that sleep? The answer was heard from the cross. This is the walking cross that's following them. And the answer was Yes. So this is what a legend looks like. You have all these improbable events, like all all the people from everywhere are all there. The the high priests are there. You read later on in the Gospel of Peter that Pilate was in tears and he was repenting and he was saying, what shall we do? And and all the Sanhedrin was there. Um, And you have a talking cross and you have stones that roll by themselves and all this stuff. You compare that to Mark. The woman showed up there was this young man there. It doesn't even say he was an angel. There was just a young man there. Jesus wasn't there and he said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And the woman left and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's it. And so the fact that it's a very, very minimalistic account really bodes well for the Gospel of Mark being a solid historical uh, document and makes it far more likely that, um, that this actually happened. Mark's story of Jesus' burial by Joseph contains neither fantastical elements, such as talking crosses and and stones that use the force to levitate, neither fantastical elements nor Christian motifs, and so creates no impression of being a legend, according to Dale Allison. As well, there's no other competing story. You would think if Jesus was buried in somebody else's tomb or in in a common grave, and that later Christians invented the idea of Jesus being buried in in Joseph's tomb, there would be two competing burial stories. But there's no other competing burial story in the accounts. And this is why John A.T. Robinson, these are all big-name historical scholars on on the historical Jesus. Um, John A.T. Robinson says, The burial of Jesus in the tomb tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. So now we have Jesus was definitely crucified on a Roman cross, and he was definitely buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The third point is that the next Sunday, his tomb was found empty by women. The proof for this, first of all, again, is 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6, that we already read one of the earliest passages in the earliest sources in the New Testament, as well as Mark's account that we just said was, didn't contain... Um, Mythological content or or theological uh, commentary is very minimalistic. It's an unembellished account. And it's really interesting that it was women that discovered the tomb. Now, I just mentioned about how historians look at historical facts, and they're looking for the criterion of embarrassment. If something is embarrassing, then they're going to say it's more likely that it happened, because you would think... Later Christians, if they're making up a story, they wouldn't include embarrassing elements. You saw in the Gospel of Peter, this this later development, that there were all these men there. There was, you know, all the Sanhedrin was there, and all the guards were there, and all 12 of the disciples were there. All these men were there. Whereas in Mark's account, it was women. This is embarrassing. And embarrassment is good, according to historians. Um, To understand this, we need to understand... The, the context of the first century writers. Um, for them, women are not regarded as credible witnesses. This attitude towards the testimony of women, I'm reading from uh, William Lane Craig, page 228. This attitude towards the testimony of women is evident in the Jewish historian Josephus' description of the rules for admis- admissible testimony in court. He says, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Sorry, ladies. Uh, No such regulation is to be found in the Bible. It's rather a a reflection of the patriarchal society of first century Judaism. Secondly, women occupied a low rung on the Jewish social ladder. Compared to men, women were basically second-class citizens. Consider these rabbinical texts. Sooner let the words of the law be burned than delivered to women. Soda 19a. And again... Happy is he whose children are male, but unhappy is he whose children are female. Kidushin eighty-two b, and the daily prayer of every Jewish man included the blessing, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a gentile, a slave, or a woman. And so, I mean, I, I want to apologize as I read all that because that's clearly not the intention of, of God as he as he wrote scriptures. Um, but that was the context of the early Jewish recipients of the New Testament. And it was very common as well in Greek society to view women as less than men. And so you would think if, if people were making up this story, they would have put men at the tomb. But, and the, So the only reason we could explain why there's women the at the tomb in the earliest stories is that the women actually were the ones that found it. As well, uh, we can look at the Jewish response. Now, Mark was written, ri- written first, and then Luke and Matthew came later. And as we look at the Gospel of Ma- Matthew 28, 11 to 15, we can find a fragment of um, the first Jewish response to the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Now while they were on the way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ear, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So you have uh, Matthew is written somewhere between uh, 60 and 80 AD around uh, Jesus died and, and rose again in 30. So this is 50 to 60 years after de- Jesus' death. Um, and the Jews have an explanation for the resurrection of Jesus, that the disciples stole away the body. So let's just stop. And, and, and then in Matthew, Matthew is now giving an answer to this answer. This is an apologetic answer to this, que- to this, um, this question. But let's just think for a second about what the Jews are saying, what the Jewish leader, leadership is saying. They're not saying, we have the body, it's right here. They're not saying, look, nobody knows where he's buried anyways. They're not saying, everybody knows that his body was thrown into a communal grave and is not recoverable. What they're saying is, we know where the tomb is, we know the tomb was empty, and we have an explanation for why the tomb is empty. His disciples stole the body. And so even this hostile witness, in court you talk about a hostile witness being having more weight, somebody that gives you support and not doesn't mean to because they're not trying to win your case. This is a hostile witness giving support because the, Jew, the Jewish leadership did not want to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but they inadvertently proved that they're trying to explain the fact that the tomb is empty. By far, says Jacob, Jacob Kramer. Most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. So Jesus definitely died on the cross. That's the one fact that is the most well uh, historically tested about Jesus. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that tomb was found to be empty. Fourthly, he was on multiple occasions and under different circumstances... Multiple people and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. There was some sort of an experience that people had of the risen Jesus after his death. Now, it's significant that this is multiple occasions under different circumstances, multiple people, and groups of people. Now, if one person had a hallucination or had an experience of, of Jesus after his death, That wouldn't be a big deal. But the fact that these are repeated experiences to different people and and groups of people, that is significant. What proof do we have of this? Again, we can go back to um, the earliest, perhaps the earliest source in the New Testament. Some have dated this particular source to within three to seven years of the death of Jesus in A.D. 40. And some have said it's even within a few months. Uh, that this may have been first composed. For I delivered to you as of first importance, 1 Corinthians fifteen three, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Can you imagine a? 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time. How would you explain something like that? People are trying. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul, in saying that, some remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, he's basically telling his readers, look, if you don't believe me, go find one of them. Go to Jerusalem and talk to somebody that had this experience. Then he appeared to James. James. James was his brother, and in the book of John, it tells us that his brothers did not believe in him. And then to all the apostles. So in uh, in one of the Gospels, it talks about how Jesus sent out 12, and later he sent out 72 apostles, and there were other people that followed him as well. So he finally appeared to all of the, the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And Paul had the experience. He was persecuting the church. He was trying to eradicate Christianity, but Jesus appeared to him, and it changed his life. And suddenly he became the apostle uh, to the Gentiles. So we have this very strong proof in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. As well, the Gospels provide multiple independent sources. The reason I say multiple independent sources is because the person that wrote Mark didn't write Matthew, and the person that wrote Matthew didn't write Luke. These are different Sources, As well, the person that, that wrote, um, obviously, Paul was a different source. These are all different sources, and some of them contain sources within them. So there's multiple independent testimony to his post-mortem experiences. Which is why Gerd Ludemann says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. They had some sort of experiences. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second So the fifth point who's crucified, who's put in the tomb of Jer- Joseph of Arimathea That tomb was found empty His disciples had experiences Where he appeared to them um, And the disciples The original disciples Suddenly and sincerely came to believe That Jesus was risen from the dead And this is important Despite every predisposition to the contrary These are not people That you would expect to come up with this idea Such as, here are some of the the reasons they shouldn't have come up with this idea. Their leader was dead. These are going to be discouraged people. These are going to be people hiding in the upper room with the doors locked, waiting for the soldiers to come for them as well. Um, As well, as Jews, his shameful death exposed him as cursed by God. Remember the Old Testament says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Um, and uh, a prophet is seen to be a false prophet if his prophecies do not come true. And so his death, according to Old Testament law, was seen to have shown him to be a heretic and a fraud and cursed of God. Jews did not believe in people rising to glory before the end of the world. If you remember Jesus talking to Mary and Martha, and Jesus said, your son, your brother will rise from the dead. And they said, we, b- we believe he will rise at the end of time. And Jesus said, no, he's going to rise now. And this was not something they were used to thinking about. And how much less, sorry, that's a bad example, because he rose from the dead, but only to immortal life. But there was no expectation of somebody rising from the dead and then going to glory before the, before the end of time, before the end of the world. Um, and many of the people that he appeared to, James, uh, as well as Thomas, as well as Paul, were unbelievers, Uh, And yet they had these experiences with Jesus that radically transformed them. James, his brother, then becomes the leader of the early uh, church in Jerusalem, as we read later on in the book of Acts, as well as the book of James that he wrote. Which is why Luke Johnson says, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. You can't explain the growth and the explosion of early Christianity without something at the beginning to spark it all off. And this is why N.T. Wright says, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Now, of course, not everybody who studies Jesus comes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that God raised him from the dead. So let's look at some of the alternate theories to how to explain these five facts: again, the crucifixion, the entombment, the finding of the tomb empty, postmortem experiences, and the belief in Jesus' resurrection. So, some people would say, "Well, Jesus wasn't really dead." And this is something on a popular level. When you're reading blog posts and you're, you know, just podcasts and people that um, are, are trying to be online experts on various things, this comes up often. That people say, "Well, he wasn't really dead. He just looked dead. Went in the tomb for a little bit." Squeezed that stone aside and got out and appeared to the disciples and and convinced them it was him. Uh, And this was very popular in Jesus' studies about 100 years ago, but it's been largely abandoned by scholars for the following reasons. First and foremost, a crucifixion was an execution, and they weren't known to fail. You don't talk about people that were crucified and it didn't quite work uh, any more than you talk about electric chairs or, or shooting squads. I mean, an execution is an execution. You're not intending for the person to live through it. Uh, and it was overseen by professionals. Furthermore, the lives of these professionals depended on success. If you read the book of Acts, the the soldiers are often really worked up and worried about prisoners escaping to the point of wishing to take their own lives because if the prisoner escapes, your life goes for his life. And so these people were very highly motivated to make sure that these people died. As well, you can get into the medical concerns, the flogging, the asphyxiation on the cross. The, there was a spear thrust in his side and water and blood came out. Um, as well, he was wrapped up, as it says in Matthew, I believe, in several hundred pounds of grave clothes. And then he was put in an empty tomb with no food or water. Uh, you know, to, even just that, he would die of exposure after a certain amount of time. And even if he was somehow able to survive all this and stumble into the upper room, the person that, G, that, that the disciples would see, just naturally speaking, would not be somebody that would evoke worship, but evoke pity. And he, he, this guy needs medical attention. But the, the person that, that appeared to the disciples was somebody that was able to walk and talk and, and prove to them that he was in, in full, um, full control of his faculties. Another theory is the conspiracy theory. Maybe they all, everybody cooked up a plot to steal his body and uh, to make it look like uh, he rose from the dead. But there's not a lot of time for this to happen. He died on Friday, he rose on Sunday. There's just, you know, just basically 48 hours for this to happen. As well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of motive The disciples, if you look at the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're discouraged. They're talking about how their their Messiah has failed them. His family didn't believe in him from the beginning. Um, It doesn't seem to prove why they would do this. It doesn't explain how they came radically and suddenly to believe that Jesus rose from the dead if it was them that came up with this plot in the the first place. It doesn't explain how they got around the armed guard, which was put there to prevent this from happening. And again, you would think... People who are motivated with the death death penalty would would do their job. Um, And if you you really think about the account in Matthew, if the guards were asleep, how did they know it was the disciples that stole the body? If you really stop to think about it, it it doesn't actually really make sense that the guards said, oh, it was the disciples. Well, if you were awake enough to know that, why didn't you stop them? Um, Maybe the disciples just had some sort of a hallucination of Jesus. But hallucinations are not collective experiences. Uh, And the disciples had bodily experiences with the risen Christ. They touched his side. They clung to his feet. They ate with him. They did later have visions. Stephen, as he was being stoned, looked up and he saw a vision of Jesus. But the writer of Acts makes a distinction between a vision of Jesus and an actual appearance where they were able to touch him. and, And Jesus said, put your hand in my side, Thomas, and then you will believe. So th- this was an experience with a risen person with, with, with flesh. Uh, these experiences were repeated again for a, a time, I think it was at 40 days or 30 days uh, between... Anyways, they were repeated over a period of time uh, and had by multiple people. And these experiences even happened to unbelievers causing them to believe. So really... Um, the real reason that most people brush all this stuff aside and say, look, I might not have a good explanation for this, but it couldn't have been God that, rose, that raised him from the dead. It couldn't have been that. It could be anything else except for God raising Jesus from the dead. A lot of that comes back to David Hume, who is a philosopher that wrote in the 1800s that said, it's more complicated than this, but basically what he said is extraordinary claims require extra- extraordinary proofs. And if you're going to claim that a miracle happened, that takes an infinity of proof because it's the most unlikely thing that could ever happen. And so we need an infinity of proof to prove that a miracle happened. And a lot of historians are going to go back to David Hume and say, look, it couldn't have been a miracle because miracles are so improbable that we could never prove them as historians. Now, the theory itself, although historians use it, philosophers have said that David Hume's theory has been, is very outdated because, for one thing, the word extraordinary is a relative term. What's extraordinary for you might not be extraordinary for me. If I believe in miracles, then it might take extraordinary proof for me to believe this wasn't a miracle. Uh, Whereas if you are coming at it from the perspective of atheism, there might be no amount of evidence that could prove it. And so the, the term extraordinary is very very problematic. It's just a subjective term. And secondly, one needs to consider the background information. It's very unlikely that there would be an animal... A mammal that lays eggs and has a poison spine behind its, its foot and has a duck bill. I mean, that is very unlikely. Extremely unlikely. I mean, if you're going to take, take bets on it or something, like that would be the worst thing to bet on. But if you travel the world and find a platypus then you need to factor that into the probability of the equation. And if we prove that God exists on other grounds, such as the moral argument or the argument from design or other arguments, if we have proven that God exists, then it might not at all be improbable that um, God raised Jesus from the dead. And really, isn't this just a stubborn commitment to naturalism or to atheism? Just, look, when we're studying, when we're doing history, we're just not going to see miracles. Miracles just don't happen. That just is not part of the historical project. That's fine. But aren't you just saying that you're not going to see miracles even if there's a miracle right in front of you? And when it really comes down to it, a lot of the rejection of the resurrection of Jesus, despite these five very compelling facts that most people agree on, most people reject the idea that God raised Jesus from the dead just because it's a miracle. And I can't publish a paper in, at the University of Ohio and be taken seriously if I say that a miracle happened because that's just not how academia, academia works today. But if we have the courage to push that aside and say maybe miracles did happen, maybe we can add that to the list of explanations of these five facts. Again, the five facts. His crucifixion his burial in a tomb, the discovery that his tomb was empty, his post-mortem experiences, and the original origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. If we allow ourselves to think that maybe miracles could happen, wouldn't that be the best explanation for these five facts, that God raised Jesus from the dead? And that's... Um, William Lane Craig concludes this section by saying... Can you back that up? And I'll read it from here. Down through history, various alternative explanations of the facts, these five facts, have been offered, but no naturalistic hypothesis has attracted a great number of scholars. So on this basis, it seems to me that we should conclude that the best explanation of the evidence is the one that the original disciples themselves gave, namely, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Let's close our time in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that you did die and that you did rise. And I thank you, Lord, that um, because you died on that cross, um, my sin went up there with you. Um, and because you paid the price for my sin, I don't have to. I don't have to pay that price. That's the deal. Just as in the Old Testament, uh, there was a lamb that was, that was killed to atone for sin for a time. You were the perfect lamb, which was the only sacrifice that God could accept because you were perfect and you lived the perfect life. And you died on that cross for me. And all of my sins and all of our sins went on you. And I thank you, Lord, that you not only died for us to atone for our sins, to pay for that, but you also rose from the dead. To show us that once our sins are forgiven, we will rise with you. You will be the, like the firstborn from the dead and we follow you in that. And I just thank you, Lord, that you have left behind evidence because you did this in real time, in real history, at a real place. And um, we can look at the evidence and we can see the traces of um, what you did um, so long ago. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.